Well, good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. As we continue our study of Luke, these very powerful words here in the Gospel of Luke, very challenging words. Luke 14, we're looking this morning at verses 25 through 35. In just a moment, I'm going to read the text to you. I don't know about you, but as we've been going through Luke, every time Jesus speaks, you just feel that little pierce to your heart. And today is uh, not just a little pierce to the heart. Today is a giant bazooka to the heart. And, uh, and it's good. It's a good, soothing thing. It's amazing uh, how incredibly uh, soothing the pain of the conviction of the Spirit is. But let me read to you what we'll study here. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how, it's, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray here. Father, we now come to a very strong text, and I pray, Lord, that this work would indeed not only pierce our heart, not only convict us, but also, Lord, may it restore us to the way that you have designed us to be created. May it complete us and remove the sense of incompletion that we feel. May it, may it give us hope as we have sought maybe to find hope in places where hope cannot be found. And so, Lord, as we approach this text now, may it do its work. May it conform us to the image of Jesus and may we celebrate as we let go of the things that don't last and hold on to the things that do. And so, Lord, I pray now that your spirit would be among us, that he might open our eyes and open our ears, that we might hear what you have to say. In Christ's name, amen. This week I had a conversation with somebody earlier in the week, a guy from the community, an older gentleman, and uh, we had one of those, uh, what I call the so you're a pastor conversation. And the so you're a pastor conversation usually begins when somebody who knows I'm a pastor walks up to me and says, so you're a pastor. 
what do you think about this? Right? They want me to reflect on this topic that they're going to bring up. The topic that he wanted to bring up was moral decline in America. He's an older gentleman, so he has witnessed things change in our culture. He's seen a lot of change that's gone on. And, uh, and he was starting to get a little bit out of shape about the change. And, and basically, he wanted to know why is Satan advancing in our culture and destroying our culture? Why is Satan advancing? And he wanted me to, to reflect on that as a pastor. You reflect on this. You tell me why Satan's advancing. And so we were had this conversation about this. And, and, uh, and, and I thought, what a great way to begin the week in light of this passage that we're looking at today. And the reason why is this, I was thought about that, the things that this guy said to me, and thought about kind of all the, the passions that were on his heart, and, and it occurred to me that, that there were a few things that were missing in his thought process, a few things that he was missing. The first thing that I think he missed was the song that we just sung, you know, that, 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 that Jesus is victorious, he conquered Satan on the cross the head of the serpent has been crushed right satan is not advancing he's not he's been defeated the second thing that i think he missed was that actually if we put it in foot, american football terms we have the ball the church is the one that's advancing satan is defeated we are advancing which now leads us to the problem. It doesn't look that way, does it? It doesn't look that way. From his perspective, I understand his point of view. But the reality is this. The question isn't, why is Satan advancing? The question is, why aren't we experiencing the effectiveness of the cross in our experiences in life? Why don't we actually experience the breaking down of the strongholds around us? Why? Why don't we actually see it? Why aren't we walking into situations and literally watching, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people repent and people being broken of all kinds of sin and, and all kinds... Why don't we... If we just sung that Christ is victorious, He did it on the cross, He conquered Satan, and we sing it, and yet, why don't we experience that? There's the question. And so the question isn't, why, isn't Satan, why is Satan advancing? The, the question really should be flipped around. Why aren't we effective in actually being agents of the change that the cross brought to the world? That's what this text is about. That's really where this text goes. This is where Jesus takes us here. As we're studying through Luke chapter 14, we are studying through this incredible set of kingdom ethics. Jesus is talking about what it really means to be in the kingdom of God. And in this very last section here that we're looking at in the chapter, the crescendo of the chapter actually, is Jesus dealing with the issue of being effective. This is how this whole thing ends. This is why this whole cost of discipleship ends talking about salt why is the church not effective it's possible that we've lost our saltiness why aren't we experiencing the breaking down of strongholds around us it's possible that we've lost our saltiness now how do we remain salty 
How do we do it? Do we take a course in apologetics? Do I come in and say, okay, I'm going to teach you apologetics. I'm going to teach you how to defend the faith. Do, do I take you to a seminar and bring you to the seminar so that you can learn how to uh, address the cultural topics of the day? No. Jesus tells us one thing. He says, you have to be all in. And in fact, he says, you are either all in or you're all out. And when you're all in, you make a kingdom impact in the world. And if you're not all in, you're all out. And you're not even good enough to be put on manure, is what he says. Very powerful passage. But here's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to be all in. He's calling us to be, we could just say it this way, intentional disciples. We are really consciously all in. But when we are really consciously all in, we begin to walk and experience the power of the cross. So in this whole passage, we're going to be learning and, and being, face to, uh, being forced face to face with, with coming up with all the things that we value over Jesus. And he's, and he's systematically going to take all those away from us. But the whole goal isn't just to say, listen, I want to take away every joy you ever have in this earth, and there you go. There's Christianity. The point of being a Christian is you're going to go through life just burying your head in the sand going, I get to experience no joy, no pleasure, no nothing. That's not the point. The point is there is a glory in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a glory in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ in your home. There's a glory in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ in our community, in your culture, at work. Strongholds can be broken. People can experience all kinds of victory. But that only comes when you're all in. And so this challenge is to say, let go of all of the things that hold you in bondage to this world. And be all in for Jesus. Then you'll experience what it is to be salt and light in this world. So we're going to be challenged with this today. We're going to see these kingdom values. And we're going to see that kingdom values have, as we'll see in this passage, kind of three things. We could say it this way. If you want to be an intentional disciple of Jesus, you're going to value Jesus above everything. You're going to count the cost so you can be all in. And you're going to make a cultural impact. You will make an impact. You'll make an impact in your home. You'll make an impact with your family. You'll make an impact everywhere you go. You'll experience what we just sung. The victory of the cross. So we're going to see this today. It will challenge us. I just want you to know. It's a challenging passage. But the point of the passage is to say, listen. When you're all in, there's true effectiveness for the kingdom. But if you're not all in, you're all out. And there's the challenge. So let's look at it here. Let's look at the first value here. Jesus above all. Look at verse 25 with me. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
Now let's set this into context. Jesus is making his way down from Galilee down to Jerusalem. People have literally left their jobs. You realize this? And they are actually following him to Jerusalem. They really honestly believe this guy's the Messiah. They're back in the winter. They're going to march into Jerusalem with the Messiah. And from their perspective, Rome's going to be kicked out. All these glorious things are going to happen. The year of the Lord's going to come. It's going to be incredible. And so they have left everything and they are following Jesus. And they're on this journey. They're making their way south. And along the way, Jesus has been telling them, guys, I'm telling you, you, to follow me is, is a walk of humility. It's a walk of service. It's a walk of commitment. And he's saying this over and over and over again. And then he gets to this point where he's got all throngs of people following him. I keep thinking that Jesus would be a horrible megachurch pastor. Because every time he gets the people, he doesn't say, go invite your neighbors. Right? <laughs> bring more in. Bring more in. He starts saying some intense things to them. And what he does is he gathers these people around him, or the, the people have gathered around him, and he says two things. The first thing he says to them is, if anyone comes after me, now mind you, they're coming after him. They're leaving their jobs. They're following him down to Jerusalem. And he says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father, his mother's wife's children, brothers, sisters, and his life, he can't follow me. Now, could you imagine hearing that? You hear it right now. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. And uh, it's going to sound almost irreligious. Does it sound like Jesus is contradicting the Bible here? <laughs> I mean, like, be honest. Doesn't it sound that way a little bit? Like, like husbands, aren't supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church? How in the world could he say, hate your wife? Right, children, aren't you supposed to honor your parents? I mean, like, this, this should be the theme verse for every rebellious kid. Yeah, I hate you, Mom and Dad. I'm doing it for Jesus. You know? What time do you want me to go to bed? 10? I'll be in bed at midnight because I'm following Jesus, right? I mean, is that... What's he... Why does he say this? Kids, those are not areas to take notes right now if you're a teenager. I saw some pens flying. Put the pens down. That was a joke. Why is he saying this? What would make him say this? Well, in order to help you understand this, I want to explain to you a Greek word. I'm going to toss in a Greek word here for you. And some of you who are philosophy majors, you'll know this Greek word. But it's an important word because it carries with it a concept. And that concept will help you understand Jesus and what he's doing here. The Greek word is the Greek word telos. T-E-L-O-S. Telos. Now some of you who are, I'll do this for the sake of you philosophy majors, uh, teleology, right? The study of the end. Now, telos means this. It, 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 it's a word that carries the idea of the end or the goal of something. Now, let me, let me put it in a simple illustration. If you were going to go into the locker room uh, and speak to a football team that's going to play in a Super Bowl, right, and it's, you know, two hours before the game and the players are in the locker room getting ready to play the game, and you are able to gather the whole team together and ask them this question, why are you playing this game? I guarantee you, you would not hear this answer. It doesn't really matter if you win or lose. All that matters is that you played the game. I highly doubt anyone says that before the game. There's only one team who says that after the game. Which team? 
Christmas. They're losing to the Cubs. <laughs> Easy now. That is true, though. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Now you got my mind going there, Mike. No, I'm teasing. No, that's true, though, right? Before the game, why is every team playing the game? To win, right? To win. That's their telos, their end goal. The telos is the, the driving end goal behind why you do what you do. What is your motivation? Why are you accomplishing what you're accomplishing? This statement is a telos statement. It's saying, what are you ultimately doing this for? Why are you living your life? Why are you following Jesus? What is your intention behind following Jesus? What's your end goal? Many years ago, somebody came to me for some advice. The church they were attending was changing locations. They were moving to a new location. This person was a little bent out of shape by it. They were upset by the moving of the location, and they wanted to talk to the leaders. In the course of that conversation, uh, I asked them, why are you bent out of shape about the church moving locations? And here was the response. It's my job to raise my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm afraid that the location that our church is moving to is a more public location. And people might walk in that could influence my children in a bad way. I don't want my children influenced by sinners. And so therefore, I like the fact that I can raise my children in this church where we're tucked away, where no one can see us. Now, what is the telos of life for him? The telos of life is accomplishing a goal he will never accomplish. Keeping sinners away from his children. I think he forgot about he and his wife, did he not? Right? <laughs> I think he missed a few sinners in the home. Right? But what's the reality? What happened? His telos stopped at the raising of his children. Now, raising of children is very important, is it not? But it's not the telos. It's not the end goal. What's the end goal? That's what this statement is about. Here's what he says. He says, unless you hate all of these things, you cannot follow me. Now, we'll deal with the word hate here in a minute. But let's deal with what he's ultimately getting at. What's he ultimately getting at? Jesus is saying, you have to be all in for me. This has to be about my kingdom. This has to be about my glory. This has to be about my purposes. If you could say it this way, Jesus is saying, I'm not a means to your end. I'm not a means to your end. Your goal with your family, your goal with your marriage, your goal with your life, your goal with your career, I'm not just a means to make your career better. I'm not just a means to make your family better. I'm not just a means to make your marriage better. I have to be the means and the end of your life. You got to say, I'm all in for you. I want to live for your purposes. I want to live for your kingdom. 
I want to be all in for you. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, if that's not your heart, here comes the harshness, you can't be my disciple. So he's not saying, there are those that are all in, those are like the missionaries, right? They're the ones that go off to foreign lands and give it all up, and, and, and they're the missionaries. And then you got us kind of in the middle of the road here. We're kind of partially all in. We kind of live a little bit for the world, a little bit for Jesus, right? And then we got the, you know, the casual ones, and they're at those kind of churches over there. But eventually the Spirit will work and bring them into one of our churches. And then maybe coming out of our church could be one of those ones that's really all in, and we get the joy of laying hands on them and sending them off to the mission field. Jesus is saying that's not the church. You're either all in or you're all out. Pretty harsh. And all in says, Jesus, you're the end. You're my goal. Now, why use the word hate? Right? Why use the word hate? He could use a lot of different words to accomplish that, right? You could say this. If anyone comes after me and does not love me above his father and above his mother, and right, you could say that, and that, that seems like it would make sense. But why would he actually use the word hate? It's a harsh word, isn't it? If you think about it this way, here's what he's saying. And you've got to follow this in light of all of the scripture here. Saying this, I want you to love me supreme. And what we're going to learn as we go through the rest of Luke is that the love of Jesus is so incredible that it will flow through to have a husband love his wife like Christ loved the church. And it will flow through to have a, a wife love her husband full on, completely dedicated to him, her, having her heart not divided by anything else other than him. And it will flow through a child to say, all I want to do is honor you because that honors you, Jesus, and I want to bring glory to you. You see, Jesus wants his love to be the driving force. But what he doesn't want is for us to have Jesus on a plane with a bunch of other loves in our life so that when the call of God comes, we say, I can't do that right now because you see, my family needs this. Right? My church, I don't want my church to move because if they move, it might impact my family wrong. You see, whatever you love is what you serve. And if Jesus isn't everything, then he's nothing. This is what Jesus said. i got to be it all. And trust me, when Jesus' love was, is within us, a husband's going to love his wife way better than if he didn't love her through Christ. Now, as the text moves on, you'll get a chance to even see it even further. Because notice the next thing that he says. It says in 27, unless you uh, notice 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this will help us even understand that previous statement. Because now we're dealing with our own life. And here's what he's saying. Listen, if I love my life and my agenda and my freedom and my pleasures and, and this is what I love and I'm going to put that through the lens of serving Jesus, Right? So if serving Jesus means that I've got to give up things that I love in this world, but if I say, you know what, I'm content with who I am as a person. These are the things I love. And so I know Jesus is going to do, you know, not going to push me past my desires. 
wrong thinking. He's saying, listen, everything is gone. It is all Jesus. So much so that if proclaiming Christ means losing your life, you'll do it. Now think about this. When he says, bear your own cross, in that day, that's the equivalent of using kind of a Holocaust example. Right? In our day, we use bearing our cross in like simple ways. Right? Somebody's too short to reach something on a shelf. Right? Somebody taller comes along and reaches it for them, and they say, oh yeah, I'm short. We all got our crosses to bear. Mine is. I got stubby arms. Right? I mean, people use it that way. Right? We use that bearing our cross in this really trivial way. No one at that moment would have thought of the cross as some trivial thing. When he says bear your cross, he's literally saying that. Do you understand that serving me might mean that you're going to stand face to face with evil. And you might lose your life. The question is, what do you love more than me? What do you love more than me? I was thinking about, just because of the missions conference we had last week, think about Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, those guys who, who died 50, 60 years ago down in Ecuador. Most people, if you're not familiar with the story, if, you, if, you're not, if you haven't read the biography, most people are unaware of one really interesting fact. When those guys, five, five missionaries land on a beach dealing with savage headhunters, no one, as far as we know, had ever really reached out to them with the gospel. And they land on that beach. And when they get there on that beach, and it's, it's intense, they finally make contact with these people. They don't know if they're going to die. Because these, all these guys are known for is that when they meet you, if they don't know you, they kill you. And cut off your heads and shrink them and wear them around their neck as jewelry. So now these guys make contact with them. And they, they have several days of, of good contacts with them. Several days of really good contacts. And then one day, they're out on the beach, and all the warriors show up with spears. Now, there's an interesting fact that most people don't know. In the airplane were five guns. You know that? Because you don't land in the jungle without a gun. Right? There's lions and tigers and all kinds of animals that could kill you. You don't know how long you're going to be out there, so you might need to hunt for food. There were five guns. And when those warriors showed up with those spears, did you know they could have pulled those guns out and shot those warriors? Those guys could have been alive today in their 90s. They could have been standing up here giving testimonies of how many people they've led to the Lord since they, they were only 27 when they died. Why didn't they pull the guns out? You know, if they had pulled the guns out and shot those Indians... Not one native tribe would have looked down upon them. Did you know that? Not one native tribe. In fact, those tribes afterwards were surprised that they didn't kill them. And they held all the missionaries that were out there at that point in suspicion, thinking that a revenge killing was going to come. And I highly doubt anybody in America would have been upset with them. Right? Somebody's coming after you with a spear and you have a gun? Wouldn't your instincts be to kill them? But they didn't pull the guns out. Why? Because they didn't come to kill those people. They came to preach Christ. 
And either, they would, either those people would repent or they would lose their life. But their life, they didn't hold dear. They, they, we didn't come to kill them. We came to proclaim Christ. And we're going to stand there in the humility of Christ, proclaiming him until all the spears go through our hearts and we die. Now what happened? We know the result of what happened. The one guy who put a spear through Nate Saint's heart, the, or the pilot of the airplane, is an evangelist, came to Christ. He's been proclaiming Christ for 60 years. And we know that there have been thousands of people saved as a result of those men proclaiming Christ to their death. And we know there have been tens of thousands of, of missionaries and pastors and, and, and people that have been influenced by the story that have put it all on the line for the gospel. See, this is the heart of this. Jesus is saying, listen, the instinct to preserve your life is the wrong instinct. I want you to give everything to me. I don't want you to hold on to this world. I don't want you to hold on to things. I want you to realize that advancing the gospel puts you face to face with evil. And evil, the strongholds, will either break down in front of you or the strongholds could kill you. But either way, God's will will be done. So he's like, this is what I want you to live for. But you see, if you love these things, if I say, I can't go there because of my wife, I can't go there because of my children, I can't go there because of my job, I need my personal time, I can't go there because I really like toilet paper and I don't like living in places without toilet paper. Whatever, you know. <laughs> Whatever it is, he's saying, that's what you love more than me. What do you love more than me? You see, you should love me so much that it should look like you hate everything else in the world. You should love me so much that everything else, it looks like you hate it because you're willing to let it all go. You're willing to stand there as a 27-year-old man knowing you've got a three-year-old son. And you're willing to stand there and take the spear and trust that God will raise your son for you. That's the heartbeat of this. That's what he's getting at. See, this is, this is what Jesus is saying. You're either all in or you're all out. And he, he's not saying that this is what happens to only missionaries. What I want you to catch is that this is not a sermon for a missions conference in a room full of missionaries. Jesus is saying, this is how all of my disciples should be. And could you imagine what would happen in DeKalb County if there were 5,000 people in our county living this way? What do you think would happen? Would there not be a revival? 5,000 people. What about 500 people all in? What about 50 people all in? See, that's the heartbeat of this. So, now, to make sure we get this, Jesus moves us to our second point. He says you've got to count the cost. You have to actually value counting the cost. Notice he gives two examples. Let's read them. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, 
While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He's giving two examples, one from building, one from war. And he's saying, come on, you guys do this in life. You need to do it with me. You do it in life, you need to do it with following me. Following me isn't just adding some religious thing to your life. Following me is actually counting the cost. They had both of these examples right there in front of them. First of all, they had the temple that wasn't even completed yet. Herod started a building project, didn't have money to finish. And so, so, so they had this incomplete temple. I think he had a great illustration with that. Do you realize how much the, the Jews mocked Herod for not completing the temple? Starting a project? They say, you guys know what that's like. So here's what I'm telling you. Just like a king wouldn't go off to war if he didn't know he couldn't win, didn't think he could win. And if he didn't think he could win, you better believe he starts negotiating. He's like, I want you to show that same intensity in following me. So here's what he's asking us to do. He's saying, okay, if you want to be my disciples, what I want you to do is I actually want you to think about all the things that you love in this world more than me. Consciously go down a list and ask yourself, what do you love so much that you will not give it up for the sake of the kingdom of God? Now, I made a list to help us in that process, a big list. Once I started the list, it was easy. <laughs> you just start going, and it's amazing. And, 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 I, and, and, you know, and, I, and I give you this list. I wasn't thinking of you when I wrote this list. I was just looking in the mirror, okay? I just want you to know, and you start thinking this way, it really is challenging. Listen to this list. Our comfort. Think about how much we value our comfort. Just whatever comfortable things you need in this world, we value it. Another thing we value, our freedom. We love our freedom. We love the idea that we can do what we want when we want. We love the idea of like, I'll only partially commit to the kingdom of God. I want to fully commit. Because you see, I got other things. I want to leave my options open. Here in the West, don't we love our money? Don't we love money? We feel like I got to get to a certain spot. I, my comfort level is going to be there. We love our possessions, our toys. We really do. We love those. Here's a big one. Now we'll get some more internal ones. Our sense of justice. This isn't fair. Right? I mean, the whole idea of loving people unconditionally, we love it when it comes towards us. <laughs> right? I really need you to love me unconditionally, but I would prefer to hold the option to love you conditionally. You know, this way, I can have a line. I can say, okay, you know, man, you know, that's it. I've drawn the line there. I'm done loving you. And I need you to love me back, but, but I, I need you. This is as far as I'm going to go. You've pushed it too far, right? We have that sense of justice. The question is, are we willing to be all in on unconditional love and mercy? How about our sense of personal fulfillment? We only want to do things that make us feel fulfilled. And if something causes me to die to myself, you know, I can't imagine having a spear in your heart was a sense of personal fulfillment. You know, I could imagine thoughts, the flesh warring at that moment. How about our dreams for our future? We have a certain dream of what we want, a certain goal. How about our sense of perfection? I need everything a certain way. 
I need it exactly this way, and if it doesn't come this way, I can't do it. How about our sense of security? Serving Jesus will take you to the edge of that. The question is, do you love Jesus or your security? Our sense of space and time. What I mean is we like to control the environment. That's just an environmental control. I want to control everybody and everything around me. What about our own limits of sacrifice? I'm only going to give you so much. I'm going to go into every situation with a time limit. I'm going to go here for this long and then I'm out. Or how about our own ideas of how others should act? I read some marriage book on what a godly wife should be and say, okay, there you go, Heather. That's the type of wife you should be. That's what Martha P. says. You ought to follow it. She's a good woman. Right? I can hold her to that agenda. See, the question is, what am I holding on to in this world in which I say, this is what I value more than Jesus? Jesus is saying, if you're holding on to these things and you're not counting the cost, what does he say? You cannot be my disciple. If you don't consciously go through the exercise of letting these things go, you cannot be my disciple. You've got to count the cost. Which then leads us to our third point, which is the cultural impact. Look at verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when you see that he who has ears to hear, let him hear, that's Jesus' way of saying, if this is resonating with you, then do something about it. If you don't get it, you don't get it. Those in whom the Spirit of God is quickening their heart, they're going to go, yeah, for some strange reason, giving that all up for Jesus just seems wise. Some people, they, they hear it. Other people don't. They think this is crazy talk. This is crazy talk. But he's saying if it's not crazy talk to you, then do something about it. Listen with the intent to obey it. That's what he's saying. Now, this is an interesting thing, right? You're talking about giving up your life and, and all these things and counting the cost. Then he starts talking about salt. And you kind of go, what, why does he talk about salt? Well, it's pretty clear the Jews understood this reality that they were the salt of the earth. It was used in Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's terms of salt. Jesus used it in the Sermon on the Mount. Salt is a term Jesus and, and, and the, the scriptures have used quite frequently to talk about the impact of God's children in the world. God wants his children to make an impact. Right? He, he's left us here to actually impact wherever we are. We're actually to be effective. Salt is an incredibly effective uh, mineral. It's a mineral, right? Right, kids? Is it a mineral? What is it? What is it? Yeah? Okay, thank you. Just want to make sure it's right. Okay? Don't want those emails. Salt's not a mineral. No. Okay. It's very effective. Even in that day, they understood how effective salt was. You knew that when you had a, a wound, you cleaned it out with salt. You knew that if you wanted to take care of your meat... And cure your meat, you cure it in salt. You knew that you put salt on your food. They understood that salt is an impact agent. And we even know even more about salt today. It's a great picture. right? We know that it hydrates the body. If, if you were found lying on a road, passed out, 
And after they determined that you were breathing, you know what the next thing they would be doing? Sticking a needle in your arm and inserting salt solution. Salt hydrates your body. Salt is incredibly powerful. Everywhere it goes, it has an impact. Everywhere it goes. And he's saying salt is good. But what happens when salt ceases to be salt? It's worthless. You won't put it on the soil. You won't put it anywhere. You can't use it. It's not even good enough to put on manure. You are worse than manure if you're saltless salt. Jesus is intentionally saying this. He's saying, guys, think about what I'm saying here. Here's his point. The only way to have an impact in this world, the only way to see strongholds broken in your family, the only way to see strongholds broken in your work, the only way to see strongholds broken in the community, the only way to see life-changing, powerful kingdom work going on is to be all in. Five guys dying in a, in a, on a beach in the middle of nowhere in, in the 1950s. No television cameras. No internet. No cell phones. Impacted the world. Five guys being killed by headhunters. Headhunters who had killed hundreds if not thousands of people before that. Killing five more white guys on a beach. But salt is good. Because when five guys die who are saying, I'm all in for Jesus, the world changes. Thousands get saved. Hard-hearted headhunters become evangelists for the kingdom of God. This is what he's saying. Salt is awesome. But if the salt lost its saltiness, meaning this, if somebody just wants to add Jesus to the loves of their life, he's saying they're worthless. They're worthless. You cannot be my disciple. It's the whole reason why I don't like that terminology, asking Jesus into your heart. Not asking Jesus into my heart. I'm saying, Jesus, take my heart, man. Give me a new heart. I'm all in for you. I'm not adding you to my life. Jesus isn't just one of a series of loves. He's my only love. Out of him, I will love everybody and everything, and I will, I, I will serve and sacrifice to the death because I'm no longer holding on to myself. Think about a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church because he's in love with Jesus. He's willing to die for his wife. Think about a wife who's in love with Jesus so much that she's willing to set aside all her sense of justice to serve Jesus, to bring glory to him. You better believe that's going to be a dynamic wife in a home. You better believe it. Because you're no longer holding on to this world. It means nothing anymore. You've let it all go. And all you want to bring is glory to Jesus. That is how kingdom impact is made. And I firmly believe that that kind of kingdom impact, if five guys dying on a beach in the 1950s can change the world, change whole cultures, what could happen with 300 people in a church who say, I'm all in? all in what kind of kingdom impact could we make the question isn't why is satan advancing in the world the question is why aren't we effective the effectiveness of the church 
is not going to be found in our ability to academically defend the faith. The effectiveness of the church is going to be found in whether or not we're all in. And when we're all in, we're salt. And salt is good. So, here's the point. Jesus is saying three things. We wrap it up. We're to serve and love Jesus above all else. But we've got to count the cost and renounce the things that we value ahead of Jesus. And remember that this is the way God wants us to make the impact in the world. This is kingdom impact. This is how strongholds are broken. And this is a message we've got to preach to ourselves. We should preach to our children. And we should preach to each other. Are we all in? Are we all in? So would you bow your head with me? Ken's going to come up and play here for a moment. And when he does, I want to just give you a, a moment just to think through maybe that list, maybe your own list. And I want to just ask you a question, a simple question that I want you to, to respond before God with. Are you all in? What do you love more than Jesus? Just take time and commit your life today to say, I'm all in, man. I am all in. I want to see kingdom impact happen. So just take a moment and pray through those loves, confess those to God, and realize being all in is where the greatest joy, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest peace, the greatest power comes from. Just take a moment and just go before the Lord. Lord, I know there are some here in this room that are feeling the bondage of strongholds of the evil one in their life. They're feeling it in their marriages. They're feeling it in their families. They're feeling it at work. You look around the culture. You see it in the culture. It appears as if Satan is winning, but we know he is defeated. Lord, I pray now that as we come with these heavinesses in our heart, I pray, God, that, that we would begin to see that the power of, of your kingdom comes when we say, Jesus, I am all in. I renounce all sense of personal control in this world. And I want to live for you. Let your love be my love. Let your mercy be my mercy. Let your grace be be my grace. Let your justice be my justice. Let me see the, the glory of heaven and, and not the glory of, of this earth. Let me live for a, a divine calling and a purpose that is better and deeper and freer than living for myself. 
Lord, may those prayers just cry out to you that, that we might be all in and that we might begin to see what happens when just a handful of people say, I'm all in. Just a handful of people say, it's your kingdom that matters. Just as five of your servants literally impacted the world, and the reverberations of that are going forth, I pray that today the prayers that are prayed in this room would impact the world for generations to come. May just us, as your handful of servants, make a difference in this world. May we not live for our own comfort, but for your glory. May we begin to recognize and witness the glory of the cross and the power of the cross, breaking all the strongholds, and bringing freedom and hope and restoration to the world. And so God, I pray for us now that we might live for your kingdom, that you might use us at this small vapor of time that we have to extend the power of your kingdom to this world. I pray this to be true in homes, in families, in communities, and in our world. In Christ's name, amen.